Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and I am again running solo this week. I do have a couple guests lined up in the coming weeks, which should be fun, but until then, thank you for being patient while it's just me. I'd love your feedback on how I'm doing, especially in these episodes where I'm kind of just talking to nobody. (laughs) This week, I'll be running through the newest season of Netflix's sci-fi anthology series, Black Mirror. I'll warm up with brief spoiler-free thoughts on the season as a whole, and then I'll dive into spoilers for each of the three episodes. And then I'll conclude with a very brief point two section where I'll talk about two films that I've seen that I likely won't get to talk about anywhere else. So let's get started with a discussion of Black Mirror Season 5. There's a whole load of police here. Think you're gonna hurt yourself. Or someone else. Family life. It's boring. Lonely feeling. So here she is again. What is it? Is it me? Lonely feeling. I don't have any friends. Rachel, you look incredible. You've got 20,000 fans out there. Knock You have to brace yourself. It's not a doll. That thing was a poison. Pull out whatever we can get on this guy. So maybe I'm in the minority here, but I'm of the opinion that Black Mirror has just drastically dipped in quality since it was acquired by Netflix. Black Mirror originally aired on the British Channel 4 for its first two seasons, or, you know, series as they're called in the UK, and then the remaining series were commissioned by Netflix and then instantly dropped on the platform at release. And I really love those first two series of Black Mirror. Not every episode lands, but each of the episodes feels unique and purposeful. It feels like they're exploring an idea that's never been explored before, and it has this style and tone that just felt very uniquely Black Mirror. But ever since the shift to Netflix, things have just sort of felt different, you know, forced. Like Black Mirror is just desperately trying to copy what it did so organically in the original two seasons. And I look at something like Nosedive, which is that first episode in season three, which was the first season commissioned by Netflix, and it just feels like it's trying so hard. The commentary beats you over the head, the edginess, it feels really inorganic, and the ending, kind of instead of stunning me, like a lot of those episodes do in season one and two, it just makes me go kind of classic Black Mirror. And if I didn't know any better, I'd think that when Netflix acquired the show, they just hired a room full of new writers that were told to kind of imitate the style and tone of that original first two seasons. But that's not what happened. Charlie Brooker, he's the creator and the showrunner of Black Mirror. He's still in charge at Netflix. He still writes almost all the episodes, including all three episodes in this newest season. And listening to Brooker talk about the show, he, he was recently on the Script Notes podcast with John August, which is, it's a great episode that you should definitely check out. 
Brooker, he clearly cares a lot about the show, and he's open to changing the way that he writes episodes. He kind of he seems to have a good relationship with his co-runner, Annabelle Jones, and he cleverly kind of describes their relationship as a mutual lack of respect in the sense that they're both very comfortable with telling each other when one of their ideas isn't working. And I think that's really important to have on a show like this. But despite that, for some reason, something just feels off about these newer seasons. So where the first two seasons, they felt new, they felt fresh, kind of unlike anything I've seen before, these new seasons feel, I mean, well, they feel like Black Mirror. (laughs) You know, by and large, they follow just the exact same style and format, and they have very similar core themes, and it all kind of fits into this Black Mirror template. And it's a lot like the MCU films. They feel very samey. And while that isn't a problem for me with the MCU films, it's a huge problem for me with Black Mirror. So I think ironically, by creating this brand that is Black Mirror, they've kind of robbed Black Mirror of a huge part of its identity. It's predictable now. There's only so many ways to say tech bad, especially when one man is the creative mind behind almost all of the content. And I mean, that's not a novel insight, so I'm not going to really harp on it for too long, but I do want to add my voice to the chorus that's kind of suggesting that Charlie Brooker should bring on some new writers and work with him to add a bit more originality to a series that's quickly becoming creatively bankrupt. So those are my thoughts on Black Mirror as a show in general. You know, it's something that I want to love, I used to love, but recently I found it more and more difficult to do. Season four in particular had very few episodes that I actually enjoyed. And I thought that Bandersnatch, which was that interactive movie that they released last Christmas, I thought that was just an excruciating experience that I'd never want to do ever again. So my expectations were really low for season five. I mean, the main reason I even watched them in the first place was because there's this popular podcast called The Slash Filmcast that was choosing to review them in detail. And I wanted to listen to that podcast. So I figured I had to watch these episodes. So I went in expecting to really dislike them, which, uh, side note, that's like probably the worst way to go into something. You know, I'm of the opinion that you should always go into something with a positive attitude to kind of let the film or the show work on its own merit. I think life is way too short to hate watch shows, but for whatever reason, I forgot that on this instance. So I went into season five with very low expectations and a pretty negative attitude, but I actually found myself, you know, pleasantly surprised by this season. It's definitely not anywhere near the quality of the first two seasons. I think the days of season two and season one quality are long gone. But the three episodes that constitute season five, I think they're far from a disaster, which is what I was expecting. I mean, each of the episodes still has its own problems. And I think that this show is, as I mentioned before, pretty dry as far as creativity is concerned. And I do want to get into why, but it's pretty tough to do that without going into spoilers. So before I do that, I'll say that the first two episodes, Striking Vipers and Smithereens, those are pretty solid episodes. As individual episodes of TV, I think they're very good. The acting on display in both of them, and then the buildup of tension in the latter one, make for really excellent television. But where both those episodes kind of fall apart is the black mirror-y aspects of each. The technology in Striking Vipers is comically underutilized, doesn't make it too much sense if you think about it. And then the main thematic reveal in Smithereens is just eye-rollingly stupid. 
but they are both still engaging pieces of television at a character level. The third episode, that's the one titled Rachel, Jack, and Ashley 2. I think that one's an idiotic mess. It feels like a Disney Channel TV show that's, you know, more than it is a Black Mirror episode. And that might be intentional, given that Miley Cyrus is one of the episode's leads. But regardless, it feels just like a massive dip in quality from the storytelling in the first two episodes of the season. The characters are much less realized here. The world building feels lazy. The script is dumb. And while I would certainly recommend Striking Vipers and Smithereens to anyone who's interested, I think this third episode is pretty easily skippable, and you really wouldn't be missing too much. So overall, Season 5 doesn't have any what I would call home run episodes, but I don't think it's completely without merit. And I do want to talk more about the specific spoilery points of each of these episodes, so if you've already seen the episodes or you don't mind being spoiled, then stick around. Because spoilers for Black Mirror Season 5 are starting right now. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. So first up is Striking Vipers, and the synopsis is as follows. Two estranged college friends reunite in later life, triggering a series of events that could alter their lives forever. It stars Anthony Mackie, Yahya Abdul-Mateen, and Nicole Bahari. It's directed by Owen Harris and written by Charlie Brooker. The app says that we need to do it within an hour. It's peak fertility. This age so much, I don't know if I can. I'll only Want to know where I'm going after I leave here? Mariela. As the sea. The thing about you. Sometimes you just sort of go away. I love you too. There's something going on. Something going on. That's what I said. Not one minute more. Nothing is going on. So as I said, I liked Striking Vipers quite a bit. We start out with three roommates who they're all in their mid-20s. Anthony Mackie and Nicole Bahari, they're a couple, Danny and Theo, and they're living with Yahya Abdul-Mateen, who plays Mackie's best friend, Carl. Danny and Carl bond over video games, and the episode does a really good job at quickly establishing their friendship through a fighting game that's called Striking Vipers, which is the title of the episode, and it's clearly a stand-in for Mortal Kombat. So then we... Flash forward 11 years, Danny and Theo are married, they have a son now, and they live together in this very quiet suburban lifestyle. It's Danny's birthday, and Carl comes and visits them, giving Danny the newest version of the Striking Vipers video game series as a birthday present. And side note here, I just think it's funny, Carl makes a comment about how Danny looks out, out of shape, and Danny says, oh, you know, I haven't been able to work out since my knee gave out, and I just think that's kind of ridiculous because Anthony Mackie clearly works out like he's literally an Avenger. But anyways, um, later that night after the party, Carl invites Danny to play the game. They kind of voice chat and then jump quickly into the game. And then things get, you know, really black mirror-y. So the game is a complete virtual simulation. You pick a fighter and you enter the game and then using this VR brain thingy, which is the technical term, 
you be you fully become the character. You're fully immersed in the world and you feel everything. So you can feel what it's like, the pain from being in various fights, which I think is a terrible feature of a game. Like I would have zero interest in actually feeling like I got punched in the face in a fighting game, but whatever. That's clearly not the point because almost immediately after they start fighting with each other in the game, Danny, who chooses a character played by Ludi Lin, and Carl, who is playing as a female avatar played by Palm Clementif, they start kissing and then they start having sex. And then, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it is for the rest of the episode. So the game kind of becomes this virtual simulation where Danny and Carl meet to have virtual sex through these video game avatar characters. And then, of course, this causes strain on Danny and Theo's relationship in real life because he no longer feels connected to her or whatever. He's more invested in the game than real life. I'll start by saying that I think the performances in this are excellent. Anthony Mackie, he's great at playing this dude who has clearly lost his purpose in life. There's like a soullessness in his performance, especially juxtaposed to how you see him before the 11-year flash forward. That's really effective. I think Abdul Mateen is also very charming. He reminds me a lot of Trevante Rhodes in the sense that he's this like huge hulking man, but he has this very comforting and charming screen presence. And he's actually in Aquaman, which came out last year. He plays Black Manta, and I don't think that movie does him any justice as an actor. He's really good here. He has great chemistry with Mackie throughout the episode, and he does a really good job at showing how important the relationship between him and Mackie's character is. And then Bahari is also really good here. I don't recognize her from anything, but she has this one scene that involves confronting Danny at dinner about, you know, whether he is having an affair, which is what she thinks is happening because he's so distant. I thought that was a really powerful scene. I believed her emotions, I was invested in her happiness, and I think that that's pretty difficult to do with a character that is kind of on the fringes of most of the episode, and I think a large part of that is because of her performance. Ludi Lin and Palm Clementif, they're playing the characters in the video game. They don't get much to do performance-wise. A lot of it is just sex scenes and kind of cheesy dialogue, which it works okay. Um, It's not great. And I also never really felt like they were playing the same characters as Mackie and Abdul Mateen were. So there was a bit of a disconnect there, but it wasn't too distracting. So from a performance perspective, I really like this episode. It feels a bit like Brokeback Mountain or Moonlight mixed with video games, although it does have much less substance than either of those two films, which are both outstanding. But character-wise, I like the dynamics. I mean, it's very rare that I actually like all the characters in a Black Mirror episode, and I think it's even rarer that I actually care about what happens to them. So that alone makes for a pretty effective, singular piece of television. But where I think the episode falls apart a little bit is in the Black Mirror of it all. I don't think this story really gains anything from being a Black Mirror story. There's no real commentary on anything related to the VR tech, because the episode doesn't really care about diving in to the details of what exactly that tech is and how it works. Like, are we supposed to think that what Mackie is doing isn't cheating because it's virtual? I think maybe we are, or, you know, we're at least supposed to contemplate the idea. Brooker has said in an interview that the story is kind of supposed to be this commentary on porn, 
And I mean, I can sort of see that. Porn addiction, it can be a huge problem. It can desensitize people to the actual thing, and it can really ruin relationships. And that is happening in this story. But then why bother introducing this world-changing virtual reality technology? You could get the same effect with a story about Mackie being obsessed with a cam girl or something you know, similar to that. Instead, by making the infidelity take place in a virtual reality simulator that's disguised as a video game and it's with his former best friend, the episode kind of opens all these cans of worms and then doesn't really do anything with them. Like, why is this tech being used for something as simple as a fighting game? Why is it programmed even at all to allow characters to have sex? Why would Mackie and Abdul Mateen stick with the same characters? Like, wouldn't they want to experiment with different characters? There's a whole point made about Abdul Mateen choosing a female character, and it really isn't explored. The whole concept of this tech, it just feels so narrow in scope. And it's kind of only used as a plot device to tell a story that would just be much better if it wasn't bogged down by kind of needlessly future tech. But regardless, these problems don't break the episode for me. It just makes it seem so much less focused than it might be otherwise. And that unfocused nature makes this episode just feel long, which is a comment that I'll probably make about the other two episodes as well. All of the episodes are at least an hour long, and none of them have a central concept that warrants that much time. But I think of the three, Striking Vipers is the most coherent, and for the most part, it sticks to landing. So the episode ends when Danny tells Theo about what's been happening, and then after another small time jump, we see that Danny and Carl are still kind of occasionally meeting in the game to have this sexual relationship, while Theo gets to go out and enjoy the company of other people in the real world. And it seems like it's strengthening their marriage, but kind of how you interpret this ending and I think how you interpret Brooker's ultimate message will likely depend on how comfortable you are with non-traditional relationships in the sense that do you see it as a win that a married couple are seeing other people? I'm not sure. But let's move on to the second episode in season five titled Smithereens. And the synopsis is, a cab driver with an agenda becomes the center of attention on a day that rapidly spirals out of control. These are all like very, very vague plot synopses. I, I mean, I guess that's good. You don't want to go into a Black Mirror episode knowing much of anything. Anyways, Smithereens stars Andrew Scott, Damson Idris, and Topher Grace. It's directed by James Hawes and again written by Charlie Brooker. Now, once more, return your attention to the breath. Airport. Yeah? Terminal 3. Do you work in that place? Smithereen, yeah. The sat-nav shown an accident coming up. Do you mind if I follow an alternate route it's shown me? Your mind may wander. Jesus! Everywhere you look, it's like hooked on the things! Simply watch it go. It's chain smoking! Calmly and without judgment. So the story on this one is pretty straightforward. 
Andrew Scott plays Chris. He's a cab driver who kidnaps an intern from a social media company called Smithereens. Title, there we go. He uses the intern's life as leverage to try and get in contact with the head of the company, Billy Bauer, who is played by Topher Grace. Billy Bauer's a great name. What is that, onomatopoeia or whatever? Alliteration, one of those. So for most of the episode, Scott and the intern, Jaden, who's played by Damson Idris, they're stuck in a car and the police are surrounding them trying to figure out what the best way to intervene and save Idris's life is. So what we have with this episode is a very tight procedural episode for most of its runtime. And that's not really a surprise. The director, uh, James Hawes, he's directed episodes that cross a ton of different TV shows. So he probably has developed a very good knack for this tight television storytelling. But unfortunately, the episode does nosedive into just stupidity in the final act. But I'll get to that in a second. But for the first 40 minutes of the episode, it does an excellent job of keeping me on the edge of my seat, both in terms of what's going on with the hostage situation and then kind of making you eager to know why Chris is doing all of this. He, I mean, he seems like a decent, you know, albeit unhinged guy. So, you know, throughout the entire episode, I'm sitting there like dying to know why he wanted, why he wants to get in contact with Billy Bauer. And knowing Black Mirror, I mean, I'm sure it was going to be something about, you know, the dangers of technology or whatever. But the tension and the intrigue, it's building and building throughout the episode. And that's, it feels good in the moment. It's, it's exciting. It's fun. But unfortunately, when they finally reveal why all of this is happening, it is, it's just so colossally stupid that it like instantly burns off any of the payoff that the episode has been building up to. So the reason that Chris kidnaps Jaden threatens to shoot him in the face several times and demands to talk to the CEO of this company was because several years ago, he was looking at his phone to check a notification from the Smithereen app while he was driving, and that caused a car crash that killed his fiance. So basically, Smithereens is just an hour-long don't text and drive commercial. Like, it's over 40 minutes of buildup only for the ultimate theme to be literally what every grandparent yells at their grandkids on Thanksgiving. Like, mainly, oh, you're obsessed with your phones. Like, cool. Thank you, Charlie Brooker. That's a really astute observation. It's just, it's, it's the most trite and bare minimal commentary on technology ever. And I was just stunned that it was actually the third act reveal. It honestly, it felt like a joke like something that somebody would write as a parody of Black Mirror. But the stupidity of the motive behind his character aside, I thought that Andrew Scott gave an incredible performance in this episode. You can really feel his heartbreak, you know, his guilt, his sadness. And so even though what he is saying when he finally gets Billy Bauer on the phone, even though that's unbelievably stupid, the way he conveys it through blubbering tears... It, it's brutal, and it's really compelling. And in a way, it sort of softens the stupidity of the episode because I'm convinced that the character thinks it's compelling even if it actually isn't. So again, we have good performances in an episode that gets bogged down by its black mirrorness, albeit in a completely different way than Striking Vipers. I felt for these characters, and I did enjoy the journey in the moment, but the payoff was just completely wasted because Brooker felt that he had to make a technology bad message, as if, you know, we haven't seen literally any other piece of science fiction 
much less any other episode of Black Mirror. And that lack of payoff does make me reflect on the hour that it took to get there and go, hey, maybe this could be shorter. Because using an hour to be told to like put your damn phones down, it, it's too long. Even if the tension throughout is engaging, it's, it's too long of an episode. But there is one other part of this episode that I thought was pretty interesting, and that's during the buildup, both the police and the company Smithereen or Smithereens, they're trying to figure out who Chris is. And it's very clear that the company, the tech company, is far better at it than the police is. So like in minutes, they're able to mine his data and find information about where he lives, what he does for a living, and learn information about the car crash that killed his wife, which was actually blamed on a drunk driver in the other car, not Chris himself. And so this idea that a company that, you know, it's ostensibly a stand-in for Facebook and or Twitter, it's a little difficult to tell. But the idea that this company has more power and access to our personal information than the police does, that's pretty harrowing. But the episode doesn't really do much with that thread besides just bring it up and be like, oh, wow, look, it's not explored. It's not even really clear if it's like necessarily a bad thing, because in the episode, the information is being used to aid in a hostage situation like that information is valuable. So it's kind of weird, even though I would definitely argue that it is a bad thing that the tech company has this much power. So Smithereens, it has some interesting threads, and I think it acts as a very tight procedural drama for the first two thirds of its runtime. But the main thematic argument of the episode is just so simplistic and dumb that it results in a pretty disappointing episode. And also the final scene of the episode, it's needlessly ambiguous, which I kind of always hate. I mean, sometimes it can work. The end of Inception comes to mind. But for the most part, when something ends ambiguously, it feels like the filmmakers are just being needlessly obtuse and not finishing the story that they're actually telling. And that's certainly how it feels here. And with that, I will move on to the last episode of the season titled Rachel, Jack, and Ashley 2. And the synopsis, as always, is as follows. A lonely teenager yearns to connect with her favorite pop star, whose charmed existence isn't quite as rosy as it appears. Rachel, Jack, and Ashley 2 stars Miley Cyrus, Angori Rice, and Madison Davenport. It's directed by Anne Sawitsky and written, again, by Charlie Brooker. The reason I'm here is to introduce to you Ashley 2. We are friends! It's really important to be who you want to be. Hey there, I'm Ashley 2. It's so great to meet you, Rachel. You too. I'll be here for I'll, you. I'll be here for you. She doesn't understand how fragile all this is. You think I should up the dose? Knock him dead. Believe in yourself. I'm getting so hard to keep doing this. Believe in yourself. God, that's a relief. We are friends. So as I mentioned previously, this episode, in my opinion, is easily the worst of the three. The characters are basically one-note cliches. 
The writing is sloppy. The story is incredibly predictable. And it ultimately says nothing new. You know, there's a shy and timid female teenager protagonist who just wants to fit in. Her rock band older sister and then a pop star who, and I mean, stay with me, this is going to be pretty complex. She wants to make music that is more true to her heart, but her overbearing manager won't let her. And obviously, I'm being glib. This is the most predictable and cliche music industry story ever. Predictable, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, it's possible to have a very cliche story, but make it compelling with excellent acting, production, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all that stuff. I mean, if you look at something like A Star is Born, for example, that elevates a very traditional storyline about fame and, you know, the music industry by including excellent songs and two fantastic lead performances. But this episode is not A Star is Born. So we start with two sisters. One of them is Rachel, played by Angori Rice, and she's obsessed with Miley Cyrus's pop star personality, Ashley. Jack is her sister, played by Madison Davenport, and she's just basically a punky asshole. But, you know, she's an asshole because, like in all of these stories for some reason, they lost their mom a few years ago, and now she's kind of angsty about it. So for Rachel's birthday, she gets an Ashley 2, which is this, like, Amazon Echo-sized robot that's been kind of embodied with Ashley's consciousness. And the robot, it plays with Rachel, it gives her makeup tips, it kind of teaches her all of Ashley's dance moves, you know, all the good stuff. But simultaneously to this story, you see that Miley Cyrus's Ashley is actually a pop star who's struggling with depression, and her actual real personality is a lot different than kind of her pop star stage presence. And no, the Hannah Montana parallels are not lost on me. I'll get to more of that later. But Ashley's manager is domineering. She won't let Ashley walk away from kind of the brand that she's created, you know, because money, what else do managers care about, apparently? But when Ashley threatens to do exactly that, walk away, her manager drugs her and puts her into a coma, and then that sends the world into a state of mourning over their fallen idol. But, of course, using Black Mirror trademarked plot devices, I guess, or, you know, technology, they are able to, and I'm paraphrasing here basically, read Ashley's neural activities to extract new music from her comatose body while also using a scan of her body to create a virtual pop star of Ashley that they call Ashley Eternal. So while this is happening, and I know this is a lot, especially for people who have like seen the episode, I'm sorry if I'm just bastardizing this whole thing. But anyways, while this is happening, Rachel and Jack find out that the Ashley 2 robot has uh, what they call a neural limiter, whatever that is, preventing Ashley's true personality from coming out. So they remove it because apparently any child can, you know, easily make changes to a complicated patented neural network, uh, whatever. So then Ashley 2, she starts acting like the actual Ashley, so she, you know, F-bombs and all. So the rest of the episode involves Rachel, Jack, and Ashley too. Hey, it's it's the title. Yay. All three of them, they go to Ashley's house to save the real Ashley and then race to expose her manager as, you know, the evil drug-inducing criminal that she is. So, yeah, this episode is a mess, but I'll I'll start with the positives. For what it's worth, Miley Cyrus, she does a pretty good job with the material she's given. I mean, 
As someone who grew up watching her on Hannah Montana and the Disney Channel, it's fun to see kind of like meta moments of her acknowledging that part of her career. I have to think that this episode was kind of written around Cyrus, and I'm sure that the experience was pretty cathartic with her, so it's nice to think about. And it's also fun to hear her drop F-bombs and, you know, get to work with a bit more material than your standard episode of Hannah Montana. So, I mean, she does a solid job. And her voice acting as the little robot, uh, Ashley 2, especially when the neural limiter is removed, it's pretty fun. And, you know, there's some solid moments of lighthearted comedy. But unfortunately, Miley Cyrus is in an otherwise pretty bad episode. I think the other actresses who play Rachel and Jack feel like they're kind of forcing it. It feels really jarring next to the other two episodes of the season where Mackie and Scott are just doing fantastic work. And I'm not sure if that's because these actresses aren't good actors or if the writing is just weak. It's a little hard to tell, but whatever it is, I never really bought their characters or their actions, and they really only just feel like walking cliches. And then you've got the plot, which I already said is a cliche story about a pop star wanting to break free from the image that made her famous. And I guess it's sort of interesting to have this storyline run tandem to the story of Rachel and Jack, because you could theoretically show how the deconstruction of this icon might affect the fans that it means so much to. But I mean, again, I feel like a broken record here. The episode doesn't do anything with that. Instead, the episode just kind of devolves into Disney Channel hijinks. Like, they have to wear disguises to get past a guard at Ashley's house, who is like a moron, by the way. But they have to, you know, they have to race from a police car in their dad's car that's shaped like a mouse to get to Ashley's manager's press conference before she signs away the virtual rights to Ashley's image. And that, like, level of hijinks, it's almost so Disney Channel that I have to think that maybe it was intentional, which, okay, I mean, something that is intentionally bad is still bad. And I don't watch Black Mirror to watch like a tongue-in-cheek parody of children's programming. So if that was the intended effect, in my opinion, it was a stupid one. Because it's not like this is an episode for children. There's too much profanity for that. But it also doesn't comment on anything about the children's programming. It just kind of like mimics the general plot structure. So why would I, as an adult, or, you know, technically an adult, I guess, why would I watch that? The whole episode feels purposeless. It just feels kind of dumb. And then the technology implementation is also dumb. It feels more of like a plot device than in any other episode of Black Mirror. And since it's a plot device for a plot that is, in my opinion, stupid, it just makes it just makes the whole episode feel like a waste of time. I mean, I feel like I'm being really harsh on this one, but I, I don't know what else to say about it. It was nice seeing Miley Cyrus again. I mean, there's there's also some interesting ideas about virtual pop stars and this idea of capturing the essence of a person and recreating a virtual representation of them. But that topic is explored in much more depth in like at least four or five other episodes of Black Mirror, including a great one called be Right Back, I think it is, in season two. Definitely check that one out if you haven't. It's it's underrated, and it's also one of Brooker's favorites. So, yeah, I mean, this final episode just feels like the biggest retread of all three episodes in a season that, in general, feels like a retread. And I think Devendra Hardwar had a really good review of this season on Engadget, and he just simply puts, 
Black Mirror has nothing left to say. I think that's a good article and it's worth a read if you want some more information. So I'll finish this review just by saying that even though none of the episodes in season five were what I would call home runs, I did enjoy season five much more than season four, which as a whole just left me feeling really angry and feeling like I had wasted my time. I didn't feel like I wasted my time here. And I mean, maybe that's more that I just had much lower expectations than it was like an actual improvement in quality. But overall, season five has convinced me to tune in for at least one more season of this show. Okay, so let's move on to the point two section where I'll talk about some of the other stuff I've been watching. And the first is the film Rocket Man. What's this? Hmm? Number 11 in Italy. The song doesn't work. That's the problem. The record's coked out M.O.R. The problem is you have never understood me and what I have to go through. And you know what? I should have sacked you when you left me. I am glad I left you. It means I can maintain some objectivity on your self-indulgent myopic little world. Get in the studio and make some music or don't. I don't care. Well, you will when your money runs out. Do your worst. In fact, take me to court. You signed contracts with me years ago, so I'll still be collecting my 20% long after you've killed yourself. So Rocket Man is the musical biopic about Elton John. It's directed by Dexter Fletcher and starring Taron Egerton. And basically, Rocket Man is what Bohemian Rhapsody from last year should have been. And just for those who don't know, Bohemian Rhapsody is the musical biopic about Freddie Mercury and the band Queen. I mean, the stories are very similar, and they both star an iconic British singer who's suffering from his inner demons. I mean, even the director of Rocketman, Dexter Fletcher, was the director responsible for cleaning up the mess that Brian Singer left when he was removed from Bohemian Rhapsody. But there is some differences here. Where Bohemian Rhapsody sort of feels like an excuse to get people to pay money to listen to Queen music in a movie theater. And I mean, I'll admit that that's, you know, it's entertaining if you look past the faults of the film, but it's not really a good justification for a movie, in my opinion. But where Bohemian Rhapsody is doing that, Rocketman seems to actually care about telling a good story, and it's trying to have something to say. And it does that pretty well for the most part, at least in my opinion. It's, it's a very solid musical. And when I say musical, I do mean musical. The songs throughout the film, they're not used in the background. They're used to create these fast-paced and energetic musical numbers that's kind of exactly like a musical stage play. And very early in the film, there's a scene where a younger version of Elton John is singing with an older version of himself. And I was just like, oh, okay, it's, it's going to be like this. Okay. You know, it's kind of how like La La Land told you very early on that it was 100% going to be a musical by having people just break out into dance in the middle of the Los Angeles highway. But what's nice about these musical numbers is that it's something that instantly sets Rocketman apart from Bohemian Rhapsody. They give the film this kind of bizarre energy and sort of a dreamlike wonder. So it really feels like it's adding something more than just your straight up musical biopic, which is good for the film because the actual story is really cliche as far as musical biopics go. You've got the eccentric protagonist, the D-bag music producer, drugs, alcohol, sex, identity crisis. It's all there. 
but most of it does work. And I think a reason for that is that Taron Edgerton is just fantastic as Elton John. I don't know if he will because the film was released so early in the year, but if he does get nominated for an Oscar, I think he will have definitely deserved it. He gets a lot to work with here, and I think he nails all of it, uh, on top of actually singing the songs. And I mean, I'm not a musician or a singer or anything, but it does seem like Elton John's songs are pretty challenging material. And then the other main lead or, you know, second main supporting character, something like that, Jamie Bell, he's great as Elton's music writer. And their friendship is kind of this comforting light throughout the film. And I think that's good because the film can get pretty dark at times, definitely darker than something like Bohemian Rhapsody. And that's because they don't shy away from Elton's problems with addiction. And for that reason, the film can be pretty bleak, especially in the second act. It's it's a little tough to watch sometimes. The film veers very close to misery porn at times, but it does fortunately pull back before it gets too much to handle. So it does still feel very uplifting of, of a movie overall. And I should also say that I'm not an Elton John diehard fan or anything like that. Like, I recognize, you know, a handful of songs here, the main ones. So my mileage from hearing all of his songs may have been on the lower side, but I enjoyed the musical numbers and I had a lot of fun throughout the film. I think my main problem was that overall the film, it just doesn't flow as well as I was expecting. Like there's portions of the film that feel like they're just a series of scenes that are kind of stitched together instead of trying to tell a cohesive narrative. And that can make it feel kind of choppy. And it's also really hard to get a sense of the passage of time in this film. Like, I have no idea what the time frame of the events in this movie are. There's a relationship in the middle of the film that feels like it lasts for literally days. But I looked it up after the movie and it, it lasted four years. So I don't know. And while Egerton and Bell and a lot of the other actors are excellent, I thought that both his parents were just cartoonishly horrible people, either because the actors weren't very good playing them or the script that they were given is just not good for the parts. I mean, fortunately, they aren't in the film that much, so it's not a huge deal, but they're featured more in the earlier parts of the film, and I was at, definitely at the beginning of the film thinking, oh man, this is not looking too great. I just found both of them awful. But I mean, in the end, I thought Rocketman, it was a good time. You know, it was a great time in the theater. I really admired that they were trying to do something unique and that uniqueness and the nature of the film in general, it feels fitting for a larger than life character like Elton John. So I think if you're interested, give it a watch if you get a chance, either in theaters or when it comes out on Blu-ray, VOD, whatever. The final film I want to talk about is the newest Netflix comedy starring Adam Sandler, Murder Mystery. No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. We should test that for fingerprints first. Okay, do you have the fingerprint testing kit? What? Because I, I didn't pack mine. Is it in your bag? Stop it. Come on. Hurry. Wow, this is so crazy. Oh, God. Seriously? Oh, got it. Will you please just go see a chiropractor? It's going to be fine. Come to Suite 802. Dum, dum, dum. 
We have to go to 802. We're not going to 802. Stop. Why? It's a trap. Why wouldn't whoever just knocked just come in and talk to us? Maybe he's being watched by the killer. What if we're being watched by the killer? What if he was in here? Maybe he stole my peanut M&M's. I stole your peanut M&M's. You stole my peanut M&M's? I wanted to see if they tasted the same in France. You're gonna gain it all back. Look, I'm going 802. Are you coming with me? Okay, wait. Let me just figure something out. God damn. What are you doing? It's a weapon. That's a lamp. Now when I crack someone over the head with it, will you stop questioning everything I do? Well, everything you do is questionable. So, right off the bat, uh, a Netflix comedy starring Adam Sandler, it's not a great sign. I mean, a few years ago, I watched The Do-Over, which I was told was like the quote-unquote good Netflix Sandler film, and I thought it was just really dumb and not enjoyable. But I saw one comment on an online forum recommending murder mystery, and apparently that was enough for me. You know, nine out of ten times a recommendation will let you down, but I figured, what the hell, right? It's a Saturday night. What am I going to do? You know, actually go and do something? No. So my roommate and I, we get comfy and we pop on murder mystery. And I don't, I mean, it's actually not bad. It's a pretty straightforward, but definitely entertaining comedy. Um, it, it also stars Jennifer Aniston, who is just effortlessly charming in everything. And it tells the story of a married couple celebrating their 15th anniversary in Europe. And there they get invited to a yacht by a wealthy stranger who's played by Luke Evans. And in this room full of eccentric characters, a murder happens on board the yacht. And then, of course, chaos and comedy ensues as they're trying to figure out who done it. And I mean, this movie isn't great or even good per se, but it's at least fun. Like for one, it's mercifully short, <laughs> which is always welcome when you're just giving something on Netflix a chance on a whim. It it does have a few laughs and it doesn't really assault your intelligence, which to me counts as a win for a Sand- for a Sandler comedy on Netflix. And It also does make for a pretty intriguing murder mystery for most of the runtime. I was genuinely interested in who was going to be revealed to be the murderer, and it's not as predictable as you might think in something like this. But I mean, it, it also does fall apart at the end a little bit. I think a lot of comedies tend to do that. Anyways, I think Sandler is solid here. He's definitely more reserved in this film than in his more offensively bad comedies, he, he's playing more with his kind of sarcastic, dry wit, uh, more so than his potty humor. You can tell that he's actually trying here to do something instead of just phoning it in, which, again, that earns him some credit in my book. Maybe I'm being too generous. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, whatever. He also has great chemistry with Aniston. I think the two of them together are just fun to watch on screen. Luke Evans is also good, but I feel like this dude is just so much better than the projects he's a part of, and I think he just needs to get a good or better agent or something. So this movie, it's it's peppered around with additional characters that make up the other murder suspects that are there during the murder, and a lot of them are just really hit or miss. Gemma Arterton, I think that's how you say it, Arterton? She's great as a famous actress who might have a motive for being the murderer, but Adil Akhtar, uh, as the Maharaja Vikram Govindan, he's just the worst. 
Like he's completely insufferable. He's not funny at all. And his character is also like kind of racist. So that just didn't really work for me at all. And as far as other knocks against the film, there's this subplot involving Adam Sandler's character lying to Jennifer Aniston about passing his detective exam. And this subplot of lying to your spouse or whatever because you think it's the right idea, but it's clearly not, that subplot is so trite and in here it's so underbaked that I have no idea why it was even part of the film at all. So the film still has its fair share of problems. Like, it's not a comedy classic. If anything, it's it's a poor man's game night, which is better on every level. But, I mean, you know, Murder Mystery, it's competently made. It's decently funny. And, and I do think it's worth a watch if you find yourself skimming through Netflix. Okay. So this has been a review of Black Mirror Season 5. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at moviemarathoners.podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. I have a great guest lined up to talk to me about Toy Story 4, so that should definitely be a fun episode. Stay tuned for that. Until then, bye. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.